Yeah, we're all set. All right. So welcome. Hello. Good afternoon. Happy Friday afternoon, TGIF. Welcome to our briefing today, Climate Summit Recap, Key Outcomes, and What Comes Next. I'm Dan Brissett. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute, and I'd like to uh, start today by thanking uh, Senator Menendez uh, and his excellent staff at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and in his personal office for being our hosts today and helping us get this great room and great setup. Um, EESI uh, is, was founded in 1984 on a bipartisan basis to provide policymaker education uh, with a focus on Congress. Uh, and in 1988, we made climate change our focus. Uh, today, we provide educational resources like this, briefings. Um, for the last couple of years, they've been primarily online. We're getting back to the in-person briefings, which is great fun. We also do a lot of writing, articles, fact sheets, issue briefs, reports, things like that. We also have a podcast that comes out every couple of weeks. And we have a really excellent bi-weekly newsletter called Climate Change Solutions that my colleague Savannah, who's out at the front, uh, out at the uh, welcome desk, uh, edits. And that's a great way to keep track of everything happening in climate policy in Congress. And so if you haven't already signed up for it, I really encourage you to do that. Um, we, uh, today is actually the last uh, briefing of calendar year 2022. That's, there's like a 99.44% certainty there. So there's a little chance we might do one more, but I don't really think so. Uh, so thanks very much for making this uh, such a great turnout. We have a great online audience as well. We'll be back next year, just so you know. Um, we're going to be doing our Congressional Climate Camp series. That'll kick off in mid, -January, mid to late January. We're also going to be putting a special emphasis on Farm Bill. Uh, and so many of you will have to become Farm Bill experts in the next few months. And the, your colleagues who aren't even at Congress yet or in Congress yet will have to do the same. And so we'll have a lot of really great briefings and fact sheets starting to roll out in the next few weeks. And uh, we'll, we'll be looking out for you on that. The most ser uh, recent series of briefings, and in fact, today is the fifth in the series, uh, we did a series of briefings uh, around COP27. That stands for the Conference of Parties, number 27. Uh, we uh, did what we called Coptober, uh, which was a four-part series that actually bled into November a little bit. Uh, and we're going to, I'm mentioning this because a lot of the topics that our panelists will talk today, we actually covered in greater depth than some of these previous briefings. So on October 12th, we looked at the uh, key findings from the newest global assessment report on climate change. On October 20th, we looked at climate change loss and damage, which is, will be a, a big topic of what we're about to have. Uh, natural climate solutions, and that was uh, October 28th, and that was one that we presented in partnership with our friends at U.S. Nature for Climate. And then the final one uh, was what's on the table for the negotiations, and that was on November 2nd. Um, during COP, we did a COP27, we did a daily newsletter. Uh, we also have an announcements and reports tracker. So if you want to go back and look at, back at any of the announcements, and there were lots and lots of announcements uh, at COP27, we have a really easy way uh, for you to find those. And, and everything's available, as always, at www.eesi.org. I'm going to introduce our panelists in a moment. We actually have a special guest joining us uh, via video recording. Uh, but before I do that, um, for our online audience, uh, we will have an opportunity for you to ask questions. Um, the best way to do that is to follow us on Twitter, at EESI Online. You can also send us an email, ask at EESI.org, that's A-S-K at EESI.org. But since we have a great in-person audience today, we will also be taking questions from you all. And so we'll have a floating mic. If you have questions, please save them until the end, until after our fourth presenter. Uh, and then we'll have a robust uh, conversation and, and we'll do our best to get to everybody. And uh, if you um, have a question that you think of later, most of my colleagues uh, are wearing pins like this. And Anna is up here and Savannah's out there. and. Um, Molly's up here in the front row. So if you have questions that you didn't get answered, just come find us afterwards, and we'd love to, to network and exchange cards and all of that. 
Um, we have a special video intro, and so I'm going to introduce um, our good friend, Senator Jackie Rosen. Senator Rosen is a member of the Armed Services Committee, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Special Committee on Aging. Senator Rosen is known for getting things done, and she is consistently ranked among the most bipartisan senators. In fact, more than 90% of the legislation she's introduced in the Senate has received bipartisan support. Senator Rosen is also a key champion of education, especially science, technology, engineering, and math education. And she especially highlights uh, female role models to inspire young women and girls about pursuing STEM opportunities. So we're joined by, uh, by, by video with Senator Rosen today, so I'll turn it over to her. Hi, I'm Jackie Rosen, and it's my honor to represent Nevada in the United States Senate. I want to thank the Environmental and Energy Study Institute for hosting this summit and to highlight the achievements made during COP27. I was proud to attend COP26 last year, and although I wasn't able to be there at this year's conference, it is crucial that Congress remain engaged in the process and goals coming out of this important forum to address climate change. As you know, the climate crisis presents a serious threat for our world, our country, for our health and our economy. And in my state of Nevada, we're feeling the effects of the climate crisis. We're experiencing extreme heat, increasingly severe drought, and more frequent wildfires, which are affecting the air quality, keeping people from work, and disrupting businesses. That's why taking action to address these issues will not only save lives, but it also presents an enormous opportunity for our nation to be the leader in clean energy jobs. This would be a benefit to states like Nevada, which is already a leader in solar, wind, and geothermal energy. I'm proud of the historic action Congress took this year to tackle the climate crisis by making the biggest investment in clean energy in history. Through the Inflation Reduction Act that I helped pass, we invested billions in clean energy jobs and manufacturing. Clean energy manufacturing, well, provides a clear opportunity to increase our manufacturing competitiveness and ensure that the United States leads the world in fighting for a clean, renewable future. As a member of the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, it's important for me that we work across the aisle to advance our clean energy economy. And I remain confident that we can continue to take legislative action to both address this crisis while using it as an opportunity to create good paying jobs in a bipartisan way. Coming out of COP27, I will continue working with my colleagues to ensure that we take the legislative action that helps our climate, bolsters our clean energy future, creates jobs and new opportunities, and allows us to live up to our global commitments. Thank you. Well, thanks to Senator Rosen for joining us today via video, and thanks to her great staff for helping to make that um, uh, possible. We have four panelists today that are all-stars, and um, we, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, got to know a couple of them when I was at COP. My first COP was COP27, and uh, really, really excited about our presentations today. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce our first presenter, and that's Jesse Young. 
Since February 2021, Jesse Young has served as senior advisor to U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. Prior to that, he was the climate change policy lead at Oxfam America, which is a global anti-poverty nonprofit. He previously served as a senior advisor in the office to the special, or of the Special Envoy for Climate Change at the U.S. State Department, where he was part of the team that helped negotiate the Paris Agreement in 2015. Before that, he worked as a policy advisor to Senator Chris Murphy, where he focused on environment, energy, and transportation issues. He has a master's degree in global policy from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And uh, really happy to have you today, Jesse. I'll turn the lectern over to you. So thanks so much to Daniel and EESI and for everyone for being here today. Really excited to be a part of this um, panel. It's funny, when you go to these conferences, they're two weeks long, there's 44,000 people, so you can have a radically different experience at one of these conferences from everyone else. I'm actually really interested in seeing what other people's impressions were, given how diverse a set of actors always gather at these things. They're routinely, I think, the world's largest diplomatic gatherings in the world by a factor of 10, probably. Um, I should also say that this was my eighth one of these conferences in a variety of capacities. And I remember one of the first ones I went to when I was working in the Obama administration, I asked our deputy envoy at the time, I said, just between friends, do you have any idea what's going on here? And he said, no, absolutely not. It's completely impossible to, what's, to see what's going on at any given time, even just the formal agenda, which is only maybe a fourth of the cop. There's four or five dozen agenda items meeting in different rooms at any given time. The UNFCCC puts out uh, a decision matrix of all the decisional documents that come out of a COP every year. I was looking at it yesterday. There's maybe 30 of them out of this COP, 30 individual documents, many of which run to 10 or 15 pages. So the complexity and scope of these events is sort of irreducible at a certain level. And so I'll just talk a little bit about what I perceived there and what some of the US role was in trying to enhance climate ambition and build on the framework of the Paris Agreement. But as I said, there's you know, it's like the blind man with the elephant. There's a million different ways to sort of consider the, the diplomatic contours of these events. Um, as those of you who pay attention to these things probably know, there's sort of two cops that take place in parallel um, at each of these meetings. One is the formal negotiating agenda where my negotiator colleagues at the US State Department and other agencies are working on all of those specific questions. They're writing guidance and rules and building out the framework of the Paris Agreement in a very sort of slow, iterative diplomatic process with 197 parties. And then in parallel to that is the political track, which is where I spend more of my time and a lot of my colleagues here spend their time, which is what are countries doing? What are businesses doing? What are nonprofits up to at these conferences? Are they striking bilateral deals with each other? Are multilateral development banks stepping forward? Are businesses making new climate pledges? Those aren't governed within sort of the technical processes of the Paris Agreement, but they're just as, if not more important, a lot of the time in terms of assessing whether the global community is doing more to fight climate change than it was the year before or whether we're backsliding. Um, the administration talks a lot about having an all-of-government approach to climate, and that's more than a slogan, and there's no better showcase for that than a COP meeting like this. In addition to the president, we had pretty much every cabinet-level agency you can imagine, including uh, the USAID administrator, Samantha Power, the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, the USA, USDA secretary, Mr. Vilsack, the EPA administrator, Regan, the executive directors of the Development Finance Corporation, the Export-Import Bank, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the President's Director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, the Chair of the um, 
excuse me, the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House, Brother Mallory, Ali Zaidi, the President's National Climate Advisor, on and on and on and on, and then uh, just a wealth of sub-cabinet officials and folks running around because it is a really useful opportunity to not just showcase what the United States is doing, in this case, talking a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and the catalytic effect that's going to have on climate ambition in the US, but also trying to help other countries enable greater ambition, working with the private sector and our bilateral partners and multilateral actors to do more on climate. So there's an enormous amount going on there. Um, I should mention sort of big picture, the way we try and assess the success of these COPs, there's a lot of different ways. One of them is, are we moving forward in terms of climate ambition? Are we getting closer to meeting the Paris Agreement's overall temperature limit of limiting man-made warming to 1.5 degrees by mid-century? Are we getting farther away? Um, in general, I think we made a lot of good progress, obviously recognizing that the world is not moving fast enough. Um, there, you know, we, I think we held the line on all of the ambition commitments flowing out of COP26, the Glasgow summit that took place in November of last year. Since then, 30 new countries have strengthened their targets since that meeting, um, including Australia announcing a new target, Egypt announcing a new target, Mexico in tandem with the US announcing a new target at COP27, they'll be strengthening their 2030 target and doubling their renewable energy capacity. The IEA does assessments after each COP of, if every country does what it's going to do, which is a big if, right? If countries actually meet their pledges, how close do we get to the 1.5 degree limit? They said after COP26, if everyone does what they're going to say, you'd get somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.8 degrees of man-made warming. After this COP, they said 1.7 degrees. That's progress, that's something real. That said, it's not yet at 1.5, it's nowhere near where we need to be. As my boss, Secretary Kerry, talks about, we have a lot more work to do in the system, especially on finance, generating the actual money that is necessary to make a lot of these goals and the Paris architecture possible. But we had, I think, real powerful demonstration of some of the pathways we're gonna try and get there. Um, a couple of days, actually during the COP itself, the G20 summit in Bali, the president announced a new um, just energy transition partnership announcement with Indonesia, which is one of the large developing emitters that we're trying to work with to bring down their emissions. We announced a package of uh, $10 billion in new donor finance from developed countries, which is gonna leverage another $10 billion in private finance, basically to help Indonesia peak its carbon emissions seven years early, reach net zero by 2050, do a lot of things they weren't previously able to do. And so that's, a, I think, a model we hope to build on. We're already working with on South Africa, and we hope to do with India and Senegal and a lot of other countries that are stepping up to the plate in terms of being able to do more. Um, we had a, just a bajillion, bajillion, we had a whole bunch of really interesting announcements that are detailed in the President's fact sheet that I could go through. Um, but a lot of really interesting partnerships with the business community, partner governments to do more on climate. So there was both progress in the formal negotiations and the outcome that I know some of my colleagues are gonna talk about here on loss and damage, but a lot of really interesting things happening across the board. Um, why don't I stop there? Thanks. That was a great way to kick off the panel. I really appreciate it. Um, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, sec for those of you who weren't at COP or didn't watch a lot of the coverage, Secretary Kerry was literally everywhere. He was like, I was going to say everywhere and nowhere at once, but he didn't, he's like a quark, but he really did seem to be everywhere. It was pretty incredible. Um, we're going to turn now to our second panelist, uh, Brendan Guy. Brendan is the director of International Climate at NRDC. He leads a team that seeks to mobilize a step change in international climate finance, accelerate the global energy transition, and enhance climate action for major economies. Guy has taught global climate policy at Oxford University's Blavatnik uh, um, School of Government and American University School of International Service. Brendan, welcome to the briefing today. The lectern, lectern is yours. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you so much for this invitation to speak. Uh, it's really important coming out, having a chance to digest uh, this COP, as I'm sure everyone here can attest, uh, was a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, so having a chance to catch our breath and assess uh, where we're at and where we need to, to chart going forward is just really immensely useful. So thanks to the EESI team for doing that. Um, not that anyone should be competing for the number of COPs that they've attended, but this was my ninth COP, and I can tell you <laughs> that it has changed dramatically from that original COP I went to in 2013 to this one, just from the almost entire focus on negotiation negotiations to, as Jesse said, almost entirely still negotiations being important, but most of the energy, most of the dynamism really being in the kind of the real world deals, commitments, uh, and that kind of outside action that's happening in and around COPs. Uh, so just really interesting to see that change even in the you know, number of years I've been doing this and many others probably have been doing it for more. Um, so I'm gonna talk just about a few um, key takeaways building a little bit on what Jesse said, mostly on the mitigation domain, uh, some of the ambition pieces, and as well as on the finance um, and where we, need to, where we got to and where we need to go uh, going forward on all three of those. So first on mitigation, uh, as Jesse somewhat alluded to, uh, coming into COP, um, we had NDCs, nationally determined contributions uh, that came through the Paris Agreement from countries that added up to about, if they're implemented, 2.4 degrees Celsius uh, of warming. Um, best case scenario, if all the commitments, including some of the longer term net zero ones, are implemented from states, cities, and others that Casey will, will speak to later, that gets you to about 1.7. So again, we are making significant progress, and that's from about four degrees Celsius about a decade or so ago when, uh, before the Paris Agreement. So that's really starting to move that needle and bend that curve, but obviously we need to actually implement all those commitments and then continue to, to drive forward. Um, so the COP really does provide this really important platform for, as kind of a forcing function, um, as a really you know, diplomatic leverage point to bring a lot of these commitments and initiatives together. So maybe I'll just speak about five uh, of the ones that we thought were particularly important. So one was actually one Jesse uh, mentioned um, on, that was now is actually at the G20, but the Indonesian Just Energy Transition Partnership, really important to see this model um, kind of being proven out, uh, again, $20 billion to basically take Indonesia out of coal and transition them towards renewables. So really important to get that financing package, both from, from donor countries as, as well as from the banks uh, and, other, and multilateral development banks and private banks together to actually make that happen. Uh, the second one was South Africa. They announced a just energy transition partnership at last year's COP, so kind of setting this model. And they uh, announced their more detailed investment plan that actually shows the need uh, they identified a need of $68 billion uh, over the next five years or so. So real money, obviously not all of that is coming from pu public sources, but you know, catalytic part from public sources, how do you crowd in the private sector, bring multilateral development banks and others along to actually achieve some of those needs they identified. Um, a third one, almost a, I guess a mini jet P you might call it, was uh, Egypt. Uh, so this was a $500 million deal uh, with US, Europeans uh, and others basically to transition um, Egypt and kind of sh shrink some, some of its fossil gas consumption, again, transition it to renewables. Um, and Egypt, as part of that deal, will enhance its climate ambition going forward even further as well. Um, fourth was on China. Um, so China, although they didn't announce it at COP, they signaled that they will be and they have ready their methane action plan, um, which is going to be released soon. Uh, their methane emissions are about a fifth of the global total, uh, so getting them on board uh, and having a rigorous uh, plan for this decade to reduce uh, really potent uh, warming emissions from methane is just obviously really critical. Uh, the fifth and final one is a forest and climate leaders partnership that was launched. Uh, the US and Ghana are chairing that, uh, really trying to look at forest 
loss and de uh, degradation. There were some big commitments made at this at Glasgow. So this is actually kind of a delivery mechanism to bring all the, the leaders together to actually make that happen in practice. Um, there has been a, a lot of talk of that over the years, but now it's actually getting down, down to business. Um, the second bucket I'll go to is under ambition. And I also want to walk through five kind of key um, pieces we saw from major economies here. So the first one is from India. Uh, so India um, is actually well on track to not only meet, but exceed its Paris Agreements targets. And this is mostly because of its massive renewables deployment. They have a target to deploy uh, 500 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030. Uh, building on some of their their interim targets, it's just a mind blowing, uh, mind blowingly large level uh, for you know still relatively uh, you know kind of emerging developing country like India. So they they are really stepping up their ambition. They've also put more uh, on the table in terms of energy efficiency uh, and other measures. Um, an interesting thing that India brought to the table this year was they proposed to phase down all fossil fuels um, as part of the negotiation. So not only coal, which was agreed to uh, last year in Glasgow, but also including oil and gas. And so it wasn't agreed to on uh, last minute, uh, thanks to some opposition from the, the Russians and Saudis and, and others, but perhaps that may be something that happens uh, at next year's COP. Uh, second, China. Um, China um, is actually on track to achieve its NDC goals, uh, but we also know they need to, to continue doing more, especially this decade. Um, there is a, a, some emerging analysis and emerging um, evidence, I think, that we and many others are seeing that China can actually peak its CO2 emissions well before 2030, as they have committed to, and do that at a, at a low level, and then actually maybe start to, to decrease their emissions um, significantly this decade. Um, we have done some analysis with some Chinese counterparts that looks at the top coal consuming sectors in China, steel, cement, coal chemicals, power, and found that they can all collectively peak by 2025. So if you get that 2025 peak, the overall peak uh, is not far behind and then you can start plateauing and actually bringing it down meaningfully again uh, well before 2030. Um, third, on the EU, uh, the EU is working uh, very hard despite uh, the war and the, the energy crisis they're in to implement their European Green Deal, which looks at reducing emissions 55% uh, this decade. Um, and actually, as a result of some of the excel, there are some you know short-term measures they've taken to bring some coal power uh, you know back into, into reserve. But actually, if you look at the totality of it, they are uh, just tripling down on their renewables and efficiency, and they have signaled that they are in a position to increase their climate target to 57, 58% going forward. Um, so really looking uh, to, you know, even just despite the headwinds of the war, uh, to double down on renewable energy as, you know, the energy security solution for Europe. Uh, fourth, the US, uh, I think there was tremendous appreciation um, in the hallways at COP for IRA. It was just recognized as a Herculean feat um, that obviously will get us hopefully on track to reducing emissions about 40% this decade. Um, I think now the, the onus obviously is on you know, implementing that uh, swiftly uh, and robustly and then also getting the regulatory agenda uh, and the standards agenda really uh, you know, picking up pace to make up that delta to get to the 50 to 55% um, commitment that, that the president has made um, to, in terms of reducing emissions this decade. Fifth and final, uh, Brazil. Uh, this was a real bright spot at the COP. Um, President-elect Lula came. He was a, basically a total rock star at the COP. He had crowds following him around, basically screaming. Um, and he recommitted Brazil uh, to zero uh, 
uh, zero deforestation and degradation. And again, given how intransigent uh, you know, the current administration in Brazil has been, this really has the potential to shift the dial in terms of the global emissions trajectory. Um, just the last thing to note on, on ambition is there were calls again coming out of last year, but also reiterated again this year, uh, for all countries to align their NDCs with 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, there are still a number of, of major emitters who have not yet done that, and there will be a summit hosted by the UN Secretary General in September of next year alongside the UN General Assembly that will be a platform where we hope a number of those leaders will be making uh, those types of commitments. Uh, third and final, just to wrap up on climate finance. Uh, climate finance was uh, you know, a tough picture, I think, but definitely some bright spots that we and others, I think, are seeing to, to capitalize on. Um, first, the kind of big picture, uh, developed uh, countries still have not yet met their $100 billion per year commitment uh, to mobilize uh, climate finance for developing countries uh, from 2020. Uh, this was an original commitment made in 2009 and was also a core part of the political bargain of getting the Paris Agreement. Um, so, you know, it has certainly eroded some trust in negotiations, that non-delivery, but I think there is a sense that it will be uh, on track uh, to deliver it next year and hopefully even uh, exceed and go over the $100 billion for 23, 24, 25 and help make somewhat of an average uh, of $100 billion per year for those, for those kind of five years. Um, it was uh, also abundantly clear in the hallways uh, and the meeting rooms of, of COP that, uh, you know, despite the uh, incredible and kind of in the stark contrast to the incredible uh, effort around IRA, the U.S. is not pulling its weight yet on climate finance. And this was a really big part, uh, both of the kind of, you know, internal dynamics as well as the uh, kind of public narrative around COP. Um, so I think, you know, there are there's just a huge amount of attention, both from the world, but I think from you know, domestic stakeholders as well too, of what's gonna happen in the year-end omnibus uh, package in terms of spending on climate finance. Can we really step up those levels to get it uh, you know, as close as possible, if not even achieving the president uh, and his commitment to, to get to $11.4 billion per year by next year, you know, really seeing this as kind of the last best chance to do that. Um, as, and as Senator Rosen said, I think, uh, you know, the crucial role of, of Congress in living up to some of these uh, global commitments really cannot be, uh, you know, denied. It is just, it's so essential. And, and the U.S. can play uh, a, a really important role in helping to, to, you know, make up some of that shortfall towards the $100 billion. Um, just the last piece I'll mention, then I'll wrap up, is on some of the more innovative finance. Um, this was kind of, you know, not really the remit of COP, but kind of comes around the margins of COP. There was a really strong uh, and growing chorus of countries that are uh, calling for multilateral development bank reform. So obviously that happens at the World Bank and MDB meetings and IMF um, in terms of other financial institutions, but they are really pushing, especially the World Bank, given they have been uh, you know, somewhat of laggard among the other MDBs, um, to put a roadmap forward that shows how they're gonna better tackle global challenges um, like climate change front and center. So, there is uh, an onus for, for the bank to do that by the end of the year, um, and there's going to be a lot more discussions, and I think a number of key uh, shareholders are really leaning in to get the bank um, to up its game, take more risk, and to mobilize more climate finance, especially for adaptation. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll mention um, is in terms of some other innovative finance, um, one thing that got a lot of traction um, at COP was something called the Bridgetown Initiative. So this is uh, an initiative put forward by the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. She's a huge champion of climate action. 
um, was endorsed by French, uh, the French uh, President uh, Emmanuel Macron. I know there were meetings here discussing it uh, this week as well, too. And this includes some of the multilateral development bank reform, but also goes much broader in terms of some of the, the reforms to the architecture of the financial system we need to see to actually mobilize climate finance at scale. So things like rechanneling special uh, drawing rights, things like uh, you know suspending debt payments if countries are hit by climate disasters, really innovative but also really practical tools and steps that countries can be taking to help especially the most vulnerable uh, deal with climate change. So with that, I will uh, wrap it up and uh, look forward to the questions. Thank you all. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, you just mentioned questions. I'm going to take a quick pause just to remind everybody that we will have a Q&A. So for folks in the room, if you, if you have some questions, we'll have a floating mic. Uh, we'll um, get to them after we hear from Casey. Uh, for folks in our online audience, you can send us an email if you have a question. The email address to use is ask at esi.org, ask at esi.org. You can follow us on Twitter at ESI Online. Um, uh, Jesse and, and Brendan haven't used slides, but our next two panelists will. And as a reminder, all of the presentation. <laughs> yes, but they're out. First of all, they're outside. So if you didn't pick them up on your way in, you're, we have some printed copies for you. If you want to go back and revisit the presentation, if you want to go back and watch the webcast, everything will be available online at www.esi.org. So uh, you won't miss anything. Um, and you won't want to miss what Preeti has to say. Preeti Bandari the senior advisor in the Global Climate Program in the Finance Center at the World Resources Institute. She provides strategic advice and guidance to the Allied for Climate Transformation by 2025, or ACT 2025 initiative. That focuses particularly on issues related to adaptation, resilience, and loss and damage. She also provides substantive inputs to supporting international climate action, including just transition and climate finance. Prior to joining WRI, Preeti was the uh, Chief for Climate Change and Disaster, ri Disaster Risk Management at the Asian Development Bank and guided the institution to commit to ambitious climate finance targets. In her previous role at the Secretariat for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's UNFCCC, uh, she led the support to the international negotiations on the $100 billion climate finance goal and the establishment of the Green Climate Fund and the Standing Committee on Finance. Preeti, welcome to our briefing today. Really looking forward to your presentation. Thanks for the opportunity uh, to, to make a presentation over here and, and to this August gathering. And since we are in a competition on how many cops we have <laughs> all suffered together, I stopped counting after 15 cops. <laughs> so Casey, you have to up that now in your press. <laughs> well, my gray hair tells you how much I have invested in the process, but, but thank you for the attention. Um, and um, while um, Jesse and uh, Brendan have you know, laid out the broader picture on what this particular COP achieved, and uh, frankly, after listening to you, I feel a little more heartened about the outcome than I was when I came into the room. But I will be presenting... Um, as, um, as Dan said, on behalf of, of this consortium uh, that uh, I'm championing with my colleagues sitting at the back, uh, Nate and Chikondi, uh, we are a consortium of uh, think tanks from, uh, from the South and, of course, anchored by the World Resources Institute and basically amplifying the voices of the vulnerable countries. And before I start my presentation as a way of background, why adaptation and loss and damage is important, 
there are 3.6 billion, almost 40% of the world population living in regions which are vulnerable to adverse impacts of climate change. And uh, currently we are looking at a world where the temperature has increased by about 1.2 degrees from the pre-industrial times. And the threshold that uh, Jesse mentioned earlier is 1.5 degrees before we start getting irreversible impacts, or maybe we are already committed to some of them. And uh, as the scientists have said, uh, every tenth of a degree increase matters, and that's why we are all in it, and committing to it despite um, difficult circumstances. Uh, the third important thing, um, why we're talking about adaptation and loss and damage in, in uh, one space is because there is a continuum. Uh, to the extent there are limits to adapting to ad adverse impacts of climate change, both hard limits in terms of, you know, um, what the atmosphere can take or cannot take and uh, the ensuing impacts, but also soft limits in that there are certain countries in the world who do not have the wherewithal, uh, the financing or the technology to adapt to climate change. So with these limits coming into play, uh, loss and damage is uh, due to climate change is inevitable. Uh, with that long background, uh, uh, maybe I can uh, you know, point to what the three, three particular elements uh, on loss and damage were um, in, in this scope. But before doing that, uh, an important development here in the US just a couple of days back, the administration has uh, has set aside $75 million for three communities, two tribes in Alaska and one in the Washington state to move to higher grounds in view of uh, their, their habitats being washed out sometime in the near future. So this is a significant adaptation action that is being taken now so that uh, you know, the, the huge losses and damages that may happen in the future are avoided. So this is an example here right here from the US. And of course, you all know what Hurricane Ian did in Florida in terms of 60 to 70 billion um, insured losses and damages. So it's hitting home right here in the US. Mm -hmm. And notwithstanding also the pictures that you saw coming out of Pakistan, a country that was ravaged by floods a few months back with one third of the country impacted, and uh, the building to the order of uh, $30 billion or so as the last estimate goes for, for the country to rebuild and recover from that particular event. So this is a reality that is beginning to hit us uh, across the globe, not only uh, in developing countries, but right home here in the US as well. Uh, so in that context, uh, the three items on loss and damage at, at this particular UN climate conference that were important uh, were um, relating to, uh, to an agenda item to discuss funding arrangements for loss and damage. Uh, this is an issue which has been simmering for the last 30 years. Uh, 1992, when the Framework Convention on Climate Change was forged at that point in time, uh, small island developing states led by Vanuatu had tried to get some kind of an insurance mechanism in place for countries that will not be able to address the impacts of climate change. It did not come to pass then. Uh, the first mention of this particular issue was uh, uh, in 2007. So 1992 to 2007, at that particular COP in Bali, it was mentioned in Bali Action Plan that some arrangements need to be made. Again, 
you know, it, it was an issue that was underplayed. And it was only in 2013 that a Warsaw International Mechanism on loss and damage was instituted. But that was also just a knowledge platform, uh, nothing going beyond knowledge sharing and uh, you know, exchanging uh, the latest on, on uh, what the technical elements of loss and damage could be. And then you know, it seems to be a five-yearly, six-yearly cycle of coming back to this issue in earnest. And in 2019, a network of institutions, technical institutions, was established to provide technical assistance to developing countries, the so-called Santiago Network on Lust and Damage. The only reason I'm giving you this background is uh, uh, it is the perseverance of, of small countries, small developing countries, that has really led us to the outcome that we are celebrating today uh, at COP27 on, on fund and funding arrangements for loss and damage. Finally, at COP26, again, uh, the developing countries, and this time NMAS as the group of 77 and China, pushed for a fund uh, on loss and damage, and all that they could come out with was a Glasgow dialogue on loss and damage, and uh, uh, that led to a lot of angst and disappointment. And last year and earlier this year, then developing countries banded again together, and uh, you know there was some rare guard action to get this particular agenda on 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 the agenda of the COP. And in fact, this entire COP 27 could have unraveled if this agenda item had not been adopted. And a lot went in diplomatic terms uh, behind the scenes uh, to ensure that uh, the agenda, the first day of the COP, uh, in, uh, rolled out easily. And the US, of course, had to play a part in that also, along with the European countries to come and agree to this agenda item. I've already talked about the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, operationalizing that uh, at this particular COP was also an important milestone. And finally, the funding arrangements related to loss and damage, which was, of course, linked to acceptance of the agenda item. Um, so let me talk about the process part of it. The first one I've already talked uh, to uh, in terms of the agenda item that was uh, agreed. But it is important to note over here that there were certain understandings around the adoption of the agenda item, and it related to the issue of compensation and liability. Uh, this is something that the developed countries have been very wary of, that, uh, that uh, paying for loss and damage may be construed as 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 uh, as an admission of uh, you know liability for all the historical emissions by developed countries and may lead uh, may open a door on litigation so this issue was actually resolved uh, when the paris agreement was uh, agreed to way back in uh, 2015 uh, with that understanding that uh, having an article on loss and damage is not about compensation and liability. But again, this year at COP27, um, that understanding was reiterated and reinforced uh, that talking about funding for loss and damage is not in the context of compensation and liability, uh, but more in the context of collaboration and facilitation. So, so that was an important caveat built into the adoption of this particular agenda item, which allowed for the negotiations uh, to take place for two, week, two weeks and a couple of more days, since we always now run over the official closing time uh, of the COPS. 
And of course, on Santiago Network uh, for Loss and Damage, which was more about providing technical assistance to developing countries to deal with eventual losses and damages. Uh, there were issues related uh, uh, to, to the mechanics of how this network will work and you know, the elements that need to be put into place uh, to kickstart that process and that decision was also taken. But the highlight, of course, of the COP was the historical decision to establish funding arrangements and a fund for loss and damage. I don't think any of us, uh, even however optimistic we were, uh, thought that a fund would be established at this COP. We thought it would take another two years for developed countries to come around uh, to thinking about it uh, or uh, giving the green signal. But uh, yes, I know I have to wrap up, but I'm sorry. <laughs> this, this is you know, an important issue uh, for vulnerable developing countries. So, so this was a significant achievement. Uh, and it was uh, the, the reason funding arrangements, other funding arrangements were also talked about. There are existing funds and mechanisms in place, both inside the UN and outside the UN. And at COP27, uh, a phrase that became very, very popular was a mosaic of solutions, thanks to the Maldivian minister. Uh, so, you know, it is let a thousand flowers bloom, but for the developing countries, getting the fund was critical and the crowning glory of this COP. But of course, the rubber hits the road now because now a committee has been set up uh, to work out all, all that needs to be done to operationalize these funding arrangements and how the fund will work. Uh, so next year, I think there'll be a bit more wrangling. If we thought COP27 was difficult, I think COP, the coming year and COP28 will have a full agenda to work with. But having said that, I think it was an important first step taken, and it is being heralded in the context of climate justice uh, by various actors. And it is not only the governments who came around for this uh, outcome, but also the youth, uh, the advocacy organizations, the think tanks, and the civil society organizations that pushed the politicians and the policymakers to take this leap of faith. Uh, the next item that I have to talk about is adaptation and because of limitation of time and also a reflection of how adaptation was overshadowed completely by the drive on having an outcome on loss and damage at this particular COP. Uh, but having said that, there were two important uh, items over here. Uh, one was the commitment made at the last COP by developed countries to dub double climate uh, adaptation financing from 20 billion to 40 billion. Uh, that may sound like a significant commitment, but it is uh, very small compared to the needs uh, that I've shown over here in the view graph. But having said that, uh, that commitment has been made by developed countries. And in terms of accountability, there will be, uh, you know, again, think tanks like WRI uh, pursuing how this particular commitment is going to be made. Uh, but the other important uh, issue on adaptation was an agreement on the global goal on adaptation, which is part of the Paris Agreement. The progress on that has been very slow, considering that the Paris Agreement was uh, uh, way back in 2015, and we are already in 2022. Uh, there has been, uh, you know, some amount of meandering around it, but finally at COP27, now there is an agreement that a framework would be developed 
uh, and it will be operationalized at the next, next COP, which would define the global goal on adaptation and recognizing the evolutionary needs uh, related to impacts, depending on how much we would be able to curb temperature increase and ensuing impacts. Uh, there is a built-in mechanism for reviewing this framework also uh, every five years. So we're looking forward to what uh, uh, what the Glasgow, Pro, uh, Glasgow Sharm el-Sheikh program on global goal and adaptation will deliver in terms of the framework. There have been some very interesting ideas uh, put into place in terms of thresholds, thresholds related to uh, uh, survival, thresholds related to SDGs uh, or the sustainable development goals uh, or thresholds related to transformational adaptation. But again, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the experts would be, I think, would be putting their heads together in the coming year to, to deliver this framework uh, uh, by the next COP. Um, I've already talked about adaptation finance and the global goal. Sorry, I didn't uh, click on the slides, but I should have gone like Jesse and uh, Brendan not to have slides and just allow my thinking to uh, you know, roll out. Having said that, looking forward, as I have already alluded, uh, if we thought COP27 was difficult, I think COP28 is not going to be a cakewalk. Given the number of things that need to be delivered at COP28, uh, which were agreed at COP27, and apart from that, COP28 um, in uh, UAE is also supposed to culminate the first global stock take on the Paris Agreement what has been done until now and you know what is there coming in the future in terms of ratcheting up of ambition as brendan was talking about and how we need to do on uh, do more on mitigation adaptation and finance as well and all that is very important not only for cop 28 but also cop 29 year 2024 is when uh, the decisions on the new finance goal will take place, and all these elements will flow into that. So there's, as they say, no rest for the wicked, and the four of us and many of you over here uh, will, will be quite involved. Uh, just leaving um, a final thought to all of you, given you know, the stakeholders that you're representing, representing over here, I think U.S. leadership has been very, very critical in the climate space, starting from the Framework Convention on Climate Change, starting on the design of the Kyoto Protocol. I think U.S. actually designed it, though it walked out of it, uh, and also the Paris Agreement. If U.S. had not made that extra effort to engage China, I don't think we would have had the Paris Agreement. So I think it behooves the U.S. to continue showing that leadership to ensure that the Paris Agreement and its goal, uh, goals remain alive. Thank you, and thanks for your patience as well. That was great, and we're doing great on time, so that was important to make sure that we get all of that out there. Uh, Preeti mentioned Pakistan, and when you go into the pavilion side of the negotiations, there's tons of pavilions, and they all kind of have their own personality in a way. The U.S. Center was like, where the U.S., like, sort of the State Department one was just like, it was incredibly well managed. <laughs> it had like announcements saying when things would start and it was just, it was fabulous for participating in events. The Pakistan Pavilion had a slogan written on it and it said, what happened in Pakistan won't stay in Pakistan. And Anna and I noticed that when we were there and we were like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and it was directly an illusion and they had a, a really interesting exhibit, uh, interesting in kind of a bad way, 
uh, exhibit about the, the terrible flooding that had happened there earlier this year. So wanted to mention that. Um, I think Freddie left us off at a great spot. This is complicated stuff, and it's only going to get more complicated. And having this kind of congressional education around COP is going to be really important. And she mentioned the global stock take. And I have a pretty strong hunch that that will be a topic during COPtober 2023. So uh, we have other resources about that as well. But, but that's going to be a really big one. Our fourth panelist today is Casey Kadams. Casey is the executive director of the US Climate Alliance. The US Climate Alliance states are committed to taking real impactful on the ground action that urgently addresses the climate challenge. Previously, he served as deputy associate administrator for intergovernmental relations at EPA and directed the agency's work with state and local governments. Prior to his work with EPA, Casey was director of federal and interstate affairs for Washington Governor Jay Inslee, serving as the governor's primary advisor on federal policy issues and directing the state of Washington's engagement with Congress, the White House, federal agencies, and fellow governor's office. And he spent five years over on the House side as a policy advisor. So he knows his way around Capitol Hill as well. Ooh, ooh, wow. Um, it's, it's too late in the afternoon to get into that. But Casey, welcome to the lectern. I'm really looking forward to your presentation. Wish me luck. Um, all right, I've got my clicker ready to go. Um, hi, everyone. So I'm Casey Kadams. I'm executive director of the US Climate Alliance. As you heard from my bio, very passionate about the role of state and local governments. Um, and the, I think the reason why we're here, the reason why we're at COP and what we'll talk about is that states play a huge portion of the US's implementation of climate action. We are both baked into the NDC. The NDC relies on actions that state governments, uh, as well as local governments, are going to be taking. We can also go farther than the federal government in many cases. We can innovate and push the envelope and create the next generation of climate actions. Uh, so we are both critical to the implementation side, as well as the raising ambition side uh, when the US shows up on the global stage. It's also where we share our experiences with others. There are other subnational governments, there are regional governments, local governments, municipal governments all across the globe. Um, and it's our opportunity to show up, talk about what our states, what our governors are doing, uh, encourage others to do the same, and try and share and expand uh, the action that we're taking here in the US. Um, and so I'll start just by saying a little bit about who we are for folks who are not familiar with us. But the US Climate Alliance is a coalition of 24 US governors. We're bipartisan. We represent every region of the country. Um, and a key part um, of our background is we were founded in 2017 when former President Trump announced his intent to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement and take the US out of the global climate fight. Uh, and so during the Trump administration, we played a really critical role, role in showing up on the international stage and sending a strong signal to the international community that the US was not going to withdraw from the global climate fight, regardless of what was coming out of the federal government at the time. So showing up on the international stage and putting on a very strong front about the durability and credibility of US climate action is core to who we are as a coalition. Um, and this is just a little bit to give you a sense of the impact. But we are, you know, we're 24, uh, 24 governors. We represent almost 60% of the economy, 55% of the US economy, uh, sorry, 60% of the US economy, 55% of the US population. Uh, and in terms of emissions, we've got 41% of the US emissions. And so when we talk about what our impact is going to be, we have our work cut out for us uh, as well. Um, and just this is a little bit about how we structure our work, but our states are tackling emissions across all sectors. 
Um, and so, you know, when we show up on the global stage, what we're talking about is how we're decarbonizing the power sector, how we're electrifying transportation, how we're making our systems and our infrastructure more climate resilient. How are we uh, instilling uh, equity and justice in all of what we do? So this is just a little bit about sort of the work of what we do. Um, and I think we had a really positive signal. I mean, something that we've not talked about here is the midterm elections happened while we were at COP, um, which was quite an ordeal for those of us who were seven hours uh, ahead of the US. And so we had to sort of wake up on Wednesday morning and I was a little afraid to check Twitter the next day. Um, 18 of our 24 states had elections uh, during, the, uh, during the midterm elections this year. Uh, and voters sent a really strong signal uh, that state climate leadership is what they wanna see. Uh, 12 alliance governors were reelected all across the country in every single state where alliance governors were not running for re-election because of term limits or because they decided not to run, new climate-leading governors were elected. Um, and so it sent a really strong signal. I think it was really sort of felt on the ground at COP. People, the international community understands US elections. They knew what the result was. And they understood uh, that, that it was a very positive signal that, that climate action was gonna continue to move forward. Um, and so we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, and so this just goes into a little bit about why subnational action is so critical. Um, you know, I think that uh, the State Department gets a lot of attention and love for good reason, but what our states are doing is really critical. And this just gets to the impact of what we're doing. If you look at um, the Alliance, you know, we take our net zero commitments really seriously. Every other year, uh, we do an analysis to track what our emissions are. And over the last 15 years, we reduced our emissions 24%. And so we are well on track towards meeting our 2025 goals, our 2030 goals. Um, uh, and I think as we talk about subnational action, one of the key messages that we delivered on the international stage, because I think a lot of people internationally don't understand, you know, subnational governments have different levels of authority everywhere. Not every subnational government is created equally. Um, in the U.S., state governments have a huge amount of authority. That's the way that the U.S. Constitution was written. I think probably the folks in this room are well aware of the system of federalism that we've got, but states have primacy over key areas of emissions like power, like transportation. And so the US relies on states and our governors to be able to drive those emissions down. Um, and at the same time, we're also delivering a lot of other benefits. And we tried to sort of talk about some of the people-centric benefits in addition, right? Because I think that in the walls that we're in right now, in the walls of COP, we love to talk about emissions. Um, but I think when you're talking to your constituents, they probably want to know about how their air is healthier, how there's more clean energy jobs, how their economies are growing faster, how they're getting more energy from clean sources. Um, and so that is a key part of the message that we delivered in addition to our work to reduce emissions. Um, and what I will say is the IRA was a very, very big part. So shout out to all of your bosses who helped deliver the single largest investment in climate investment uh, in US history and really sort of globally. Um, that was a key part of the discussion at COP was understanding and digesting what the IRA was, what it means, and what are the next steps. And so part of our key message and why we felt so strongly about how we show up at COP is because so much of the IRA flows through state governments, which you probably are very familiar with. But just as a reminder, you know, the $27 billion greenhouse gas reduction fund, for example, flows through state, local, tribal, and territorial governments. It's gonna be our job to deploy those zero emission technologies. There's $5 billion for climate pollution reduction grants to supercharge the work that our states are doing. And so talking about the work that the IRA is gonna be fueling forward was a key part of what we talked about at COP. 
Um, and so this is just to give you a sense, you know, we've been showing up at COP for years. Uh, that is a key part of who we are as an organization. Uh, in COP26, we brought our largest delegation ever. We had six governors show up um, at the international stage. We also committed to 40 high-impact actions. And so I think, you know, similar to a lot of other nations, COP26 was a very big focus on raising ambition and making announcements to new commitments. Um, and then you can see this really nice photo of me and Governor Lujan Grisham and Governor Inslee, which our staff put in here. Um, uh, a very cute photo. Um, but, you know, we, we showed up and, you know, we certainly participated and contributed to the focus at this year's COP on implementation, talking about how we were delivering on those high impact actions, how our states are moving the ball forward. Um, and so we had both Governor Inslee, Governor Lujan Grisham, as well as um, more than a dozen officials from five alliance states, California, Hawaii, New Jersey, Washington, and New Mexico. Um, and the reality is they all play a very important role. Governors have a very important role in terms of engaging with their sort of fellow subnational leaders, with members of the Biden administration. Um, and then I would say state officials are in many cases meeting with staff uh, and their counterparts across the globe. And so there's an important role for both of them to play. And so this just gives you a sense of sort of what we were up to while we were on the ground, but we do events, panel discussions. I totally agree with what was said earlier that you know, you have sort of the negotiations over here and then just this huge behemoth space uh, where just an untold, this was my first cop, so I will, I will own that I'm the newbie. Um, and it was, it was, it was staggering um, to just see the sheer number of events and dialogues taking place. And you could just sort of stop by and walk into any of them, um, see, oh, that cool discussion is happening on environmental justice. I wanna go see what those folks are saying. Um, and so our key role was to participate in some of those. Um, and so we did events, panel discussions, there were multilateral and bilateral meetings happening on the sides everywhere. Uh, you know, a lot of our job at the Alliance was to make some of those connections between many of our, um, our delegations who were there. Um, so this just gives you a sense of sort of what we were up to. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. This is from a very cool meeting that I got to participate in with Nicola Sturgeon, who's the first minister of Scotland, who convened a pretty incredible dialogue. Um, this is in one of the, you know, sort of like delegation offices. So all the countries have uh, spaces to take some of these meetings an incredible dialogue with other subnational leaders um, from South America, from Australia, from Canada, to talk about how we can get subnational governments uh, more formally recognized and better recognized and acknowledged on the international stage at forums like COP and by the UNFCCC, um, given that we are the folks who often have the levers for delivering on implementation. We are the folks who have to deliver on the NDCs. Uh, and we can also, I think, increase the strength in many cases of those NDCs by demonstrating how we're going farther than our nation states are going. Um, so this is one of many conversations that we were able to have there. Um, and so, you know, I'll just sort of circle back and say, you know, these were some of our core focuses while we were there. We focused on the IRA, making sure the international community understood what it was, how we're going to get it done, and our opportunity to maximize emissions. I think someone said that it's, you know, going to get us to maybe 40%, but the reality is, you know, the emissions reductions are modeled somewhere between 37, 44%, depending on you know, a number of other factors. Our job at the state level is to maximize that. I'd rather us to get to 44% than 37%. Um, and there's also ways that it could maybe even take us further than that. So talking about the IRA was a key focus. Um, durability and credibility is a very big part for us. Um, you know, I think that there, there's a reality that the US has a challenge because of the history of President Trump, uh, because people track our elections so closely, 
part of why it's so important that governors and states show up is to make sure that people understand that regardless of what happens at the federal level, regardless of what happens with the presidential election in 2024, that you're gonna have a very strong coalition of this backbone in the US of folks who are gonna keep pushing climate action forward regardless of what happens at the, at the federal level. So we give credibility to what the US is committing to. We demonstrate the durability of the action. Um, and we talk about the role that state and local governments uh, play in it. Um, and so in sum, my, my summary, this is a very nice quote from Jay Inslee, my former boss, um, but basically subnational actors play a really critical role in delivering domestic and international climate action. We're the implementers, we're the backstops uh, when things happen and political winds shift. Um, and so we were really proud to show up and we're looking forward to more COPs to come. Thank you. Thanks. All right, now we are gonna shift our focus into the Q&A. Um, and you know, the IRA was a major topic of conversation and you know, IRA is what, almost four months old. Um, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act is a little more than a year old. And so next year, we'll also be spending a lot of time at ESI. In fact, one of our climate camps will be specifically focused looking at IIJA and IRA implementation because uh, the states are ready uh, and it's going to be really important that the agencies get those dollars out quickly and equitably because um, I think you're right. The states, whether they're uh, alliance members or not, the states are ready to go. Um, and, uh, and so it's going to be really important for that to happen. Um, and also, it's always a little alarming to check Twitter. I don't know what was so special about that one Wednesday. It seems horrifying. But anyway, um, we're going to go to our Q&A, and we will take questions from the audience. Molly has a wireless microphone. I will do my best to call on you in the order that I see your hands go up. But while you're considering your questions, I'm going to get us started. And I'm going to come back to Jesse, and we'll go through the panel. And I'd like to, now that we've heard the presentations, I'd like to come back to the idea of, or to, to, to what the US role at COP27 was and sort of, you know, how would you describe it maybe? I, my, I'm also, I'll own that I'm a newbie, uh, so I'm not, and I'm not gonna interject Anna's COP history into the competition, but she has a lot more experience with COP than me, but this was my first one, and so this was my first experience with what the US role looks like. But, you know, Jesse, how would you describe in a little bit more detail what the US role at COP27 was and, and maybe why, maybe how the U.S.'s role contributed to some of the success that Preeti and your other panelists described. Sure, it's a great question. Um, I think we had sort of a good case study during the previous administration. I think there were a lot of fears um, after Donald Trump took office, would the Paris Agreement fall apart once the U.S. withdrew? Would other countries follow the U.S. and withdraw? So it was a good test case of sort of what happens when the U.S takes its ships and leaves basically from the table of climate ambition, the agreement didn't fall apart. No other countries left. In fact, the two countries that had not actually joined the agreement stepped forward and joined after the US left, but it was a big hole to fill. There was a role that the United States plays in terms of convening world leaders and especially in the bilateral relationship with China. There really aren't a lot of other countries that have had the same success in trying to bring China to the table to do more on climate again a somewhat spotty record, but it's really only a, a role the United States has played. Also in terms of rallying the global financial system, <clears throat> there as one of the world's largest hubs for financial actors, we can play an enormous, uh, an enormous role in the process in terms of leveraging all the stuff that Casey is talking about that's happening in universities, tribal councils, businesses, states, cities, all of those folks. Um, I think we always want to be sort of in the corner of the folks who are pushing maximal ambition at COPS. And there are a lot of other countries in that space who have been dedicated to this. Frankly, 
in moments in history when the U.S. pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol or pulled out of the Paris Agreement in 2017 have been really steadfast. So I don't want to make it sound like the U.S. is the indispensable actor without whom climate progress is not possible. But I should also mention that <clears throat> I think this was referenced earlier, but there were four congressional delegations at the COP this year. There is a really, really strong participation of a lot of your bosses. We had delegations led by Speaker Pelosi, Senator Cardin, uh, Representative Garbarino, Republican from Long Island, Representative John Curtis, a Republican from Utah. So these are bipartisan groups of members there who are engaging across the ideological spectrum. Um, my boss, Secretary Kerry, met with all of them. It's an enormously useful fora, I think, for all branches of the federal government to see what the world is doing on climate change. It's not just about federal agencies, I should say. Right. Um, Brendan? Please feel free to chime in. Yeah, just layer a, a few thoughts onto that. I think um, as we kind of sketch out, this was a pretty unique COP. I mean, last year in Glasgow was, you know, big fanfare, big focus on mitigation, mm -hmm. given that was kind of where you were in the cycle of COPs, you know, new NDCs, what was being put on the table. This was, you know, a bit different of a beast uh, in terms of COP. Uh, you know, as an African COP is very focused on rolling up your sleeves. Uh, and focus on implementation. So the kind of you know U.S. leadership that Jesse was speaking of, you know, is, I think particularly historically and you know can, to this day is very you know well suited on some of the mitigation pieces. You know, they are helping to bring uh, you know China other major emitters to the table to rally additional mitigation ambition. Uh, and we saw that through Glasgow. We saw that again with a lot of you know concrete results and success uh, at this COP as well. So I think there was a little bit of a you know somewhat of reorientation too that they made uh, for this COP, focused on some of those other issues in terms of adaptation, finance, loss and damage as well too. On adaptation, you know, I think there was a lot of efforts especially to bring more adaptation finance to Africa. The president announced um, some adaptation efforts there uh, to really scale support, both financial and other types of support. Um, on finance, again, you know, there's, you know, jet peas and the, the kind of energy transition packages. There's lots of really good work uh, there uh, that's being done. And the U.S. is kind of continuing to try to leverage some of these other things outside the kind of official COP process to actually get to the trillions of dollars that we need. Uh, and then on loss and damage, I mean, you know, to be honest, and Preeti will probably speak to this, the U.S. has been kind of, you know, traditionally pretty intransigent on loss and damage. And to their credit, I think in the end game, they, they did end up coming around. So again, a, a kind of a, a different role in some ways than the U.S. Had been, has played in, uh, in, in terms of some, you know, previous cops. But I think just one thing to really underscore, and Preeti made this point at the end of her uh, remarks, is... There is probably no single force when uh, you know that is more effective when they are rallying and leading, especially with the power of a strong domestic example than the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's just very hard to replicate all the tools and the influence that the U.S. brings to bear. So hopefully we can you know continue to build on that going forward. Preeti, um, Brendan gave you a good segue to what I think you're about to say. Sure. Uh, no, I think uh, one critical moment of the COP. Where, where the energy changed for the positive was after President Biden spoke to President Xi Jinping at G20. Uh, so that in itself should tell you what role U.S. can play, because there was a marked shift in, in the discussions and the negotiations after that. Till then, everybody was not very hopeful. And the second one, um, uh, which uh, Brendan referred to on loss and damage, uh, the fact that the agenda item was agreed, I think U.S. was the last one holding out. And the fact, uh, you know, that they saw that this was important enough with all the caveats built in. Uh, and also in the end game, uh, when the EU, you know, proposed or caved in for, for a fund, uh, U.S. followed. And uh, I think it was important. It was important also for retaining the trust 
uh, with vulnerable developing countries and uh, you know and and showing to them that this COP was not all about mitigation it was also about vulnerability it was also about people that you talked about uh, uh, Casey and uh, and protecting lives and livelihoods so I think um, uh, whether we like it or not uh, you know broadly globally uh, the role that U.S. plays will always be critical in the climate negotiations. Casey, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just mostly echo what has already been said. My organization wouldn't exist, our coalition wouldn't exist had it not been for how critical it was that the U.S. have a strong uh, um, uh, footing on the international stage, right? That's why governors came together in the first place. And I wouldn't have my job and the governors wouldn't have the coalition that they have if it weren't so important. What I would add is just the size and scale, right? Like just, I mean, from an emissions perspective and from an economy perspective, that's why the U.S. showing up is so important is because we're not going to get to 1.5 without the U.S. Um, so it's both a matter of inspiring the global community, but demonstrating how we're capable of moving an economy of our size and our scale. And in my coalition, states like California are bigger than the vast majority of other countries. Um, and so the, the work that state governments are doing in the U.S., um, in many cases, sent as powerful a signal. The steps that California is taking for decarbonizing cars and moving away from gas-powered vehicles is, you know, sends as strong a signal as anything on the international stage about showing how you move uh, a huge economy in that direction. Um, and then I would just say from the mood in the room, right, I think that, you know, there was a there was definitely a, a sense of optimism that everyone walked in because of the IRA. People could walk in feeling confident that there is actually a roadmap now of how the U.S. is going to get to its NDC, which I don't think there was there was last year. Um, and the I think the way in which people held their breath and then exhaled after the election, it's just it's very clear that um, what's happening in the U.S. has an impact on the mood and the optimism and the ambition that everyone in the global community has. Uh, as they prepare their own NDCs. Thanks for that. I'm going to ask two follow-ups, and these are more grab bags. Um, but the first one's going to build on something that Jesse talked about, and those, those, those are the various delegations of members of Congress. And there was a pretty significant presence, especially on the House Republican side, uh, or on the Republican side, especially among House members at COP. I'm curious if, you, if anyone on the panel has any thoughts about sort of what that Republican engagement specifically looked like. I think it was, um, I saw more reporting of Speaker Pelosi's visit than I did, for instance, of the, the, the panel that Senate, um, Representative Curtis and Grave and Crenshaw and Miller-Meeks gave. But thoughts about sort of what that engagement looked like? Were there any, um, any specific issues that came up or, or just other thoughts? And this, again, to anyone who'd like it. I'll start just by noting, I mean, the U.S. Climate Alliance is bipartisan, um, and that is, a, I think, a key part of who we are as an organization. We've been bipartisan since our founding in 2017, and it, and it does show, uh, I think, going back to what I said about sort of durability, uh, that, that there is support across the ideological spectrum in the U.S. for advancing climate action. I'll note also that Indiana Governor Holcomb, who is not a member of the U.S. Climate Alliance, showed up at COP. Um, and had, I think, you know, I, I think pretty impactful, I think it was very impactful to have him there, uh, to have a presence that was focused on just the economic potential and job growth potential of clean energy investment, someone who's uh, not committed to what governors in the climate alliance have committed to, but who's clearly seeing the benefits of investments in wind and solar um, and seeing the, the economic and job creation potential. I would just add really quickly, um, 
one of our meetings with Secretary Kerry and Brian Deese and one of the Republican delegations was really interesting because it began with <clears throat> Representative Garrett Graves from Louisiana, who's the, uh, the Republican lead on the House Cl Select Climate Committee, basically began with saying, here are the 10 things that I think everything the administration is doing on climate is terrible. Went through that and then had a bunch of things where they thought that there was space to collaborate. So I think there is obviously significant partisan disagreement on the international climate agenda. There's also, I think, a lot more space for overlap and agreement than you might think, given that I think you are all probably pretty enmeshed in the difficulties of bipartisan cooperation on climate work domestically here. Generally speaking, overseas, I think there's a lot more overlap in the agendas in terms of promoting American innovation and American exports, holding other large emitters accountable, making sure that trade barriers are being enforced on the carbon intensity of our exports. There's a lot of bipartisan enthusiasm across a lot of this agenda. And then I should also mention that, as both Preeti and Brendan talked about, stepping up with the actual foreign assistance and climate finance is in large part a congressional responsibility. We can't generate that on our own in the administration as a function of Congress in terms of your control of the purse. So we're very much looking to Congress and the FY23 process to step forward and hopefully enact either the House level or the Senate levels in terms of climate finance, because it allows us to do all of those things that members on both sides of the aisle support, holding other emitters accountable. Uh, protecting vulnerable populations, promoting American exports, championing American innovation, et cetera. Thanks. So we got a, a second follow-up. This one actually came from someone in our online audience, and I recognize the name because I'm, she was a former COPtober briefing panelist. I keep her name private for now, but it, it's a great question. And this one's about, Preeti, uh, you were just talking about the U.S. and, and Brendan, you too, um, the change in the U.S. position on loss of damage that's seemingly occurred at COP27. And this follow-up question is um, not just how it shifted, but what that shift might mean going forward. Um, maybe uh, to build on that a little bit, are there things that might be possible now or within the realm of possibility now in the lead up to COP28 um, that, that might be made um, a thing um, thanks to the U.S. position change? And Preeti, I'll turn it to you first, but then open it up to the rest of the panel. Sure. No, um, I, I think once uh, U.S. accedes to a particular decision, then they put all their might into it. So, so from that perspective, um, uh, the next year in terms of, you know, uh, the work of the transitional committee uh, in establishing the funding arrangements. And I, I'm amplifying the funding arrangements and not the fund because I think that's what uh, the U.S. was looking on uh, for, building on existing institutions, building on existing channels. And U.S. played a significant role in the transitional committee of the Green Climate Fund. And that I can vouch for because I was at the U.N. Climate Change Secretariat then. Uh, they played a fantastic role in terms of seeing that the governance, the design of the fund um, was robust. Uh, to be able to deliver the objectives that were being sought. So, so would, you know, I, I, I'm looking at it uh, very positively that now that they have agreed to come on board, that they will put, put their full might into it. And apart from that, I think uh, there, there, are, there were other announcements made at COP27 uh, by, by President Biden in terms of contributing to the Global Shield, which is a G7 initiative. Uh, the Global Shield Against Climate Risk, uh, about 25 million uh, or 24 million uh, uh, contribution by the U.S. Uh, it may sound like a small amount, but, you know, how it kind of has a spillover effect in getting the innovation that Jesse was talking about, innovative financial instruments into place to be able to pay for uh, loss and damage and also 
uh, this uh, entire Bridgetown initiative that we are talking about, reforming the global financial system in terms of debt suspension, what uh, the International Monetary Fund can do from its uh, Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Uh, and we've heard uh, Secretary Janet Yellen also talking about the MTB reforms and how that funding could be shifted into these important agendas. So I'm very optimistic about it. Other comments from the panel? Please. Yeah, I can jump in. Um, not too much to add. Preeti covered it really, really well. Um, but I think it it does really open up this kind of space for for the U.S. to to really play a powerful, constructive role. I mean, you know, instead of having this decision made a year or two kind of down the road, we know climate impacts are mounting. They're here now. Case in point, Pakistan. But we know that's happening around the world. We can actually start rolling up our sleeves on what some of those solutions are and the vehicles to actually begin, you know, begin uh, mobilizing resources at scale instead of kind of, you know, pushing that further down the road. So I think it is really important and fully agree with Preeti's point that, you know, the fund will be a very focused piece of the loss and damage equation, even as proponents kind of recognize that it, you know, has a very kind of bounded scope and scale. But some of these broader funding arrangements, including uh, the ones Preeti was referring to through the multilateral development bank, some of the you know debt deferment that can happen there, uh, access just to fiscal space um, to respond to disasters, some of these tools that can be channeled, uh, you know, for mitigation and adaptation, but also for loss and damages purposes, are just really exciting to see how we can actually bring some of those online. And again, the U.S.'s role uh, as a shareholder in a lot of those institutions, just you know, its voice and its vote uh, and its vote is just so powerful. So being able to kind of lean in and start aligning some of those stars for the next year or so, I think it's just really exciting to see uh, what comes next. Great, thanks for that. We have a question in the audience here in the second row. So we'll, and then we've got one in the back. So great, thanks. Hi, um, thanks ES, ESI for uh, setting this up and for you all to be on the panel, learning a lot, it's great. Um, curious about any advancements you all saw on data measurement reporting for um, global greenhouse gas emissions and kind of how that played out during this COP. And this is available to anyone? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to speak explicitly about this, but um, but I know that the UNFCCC sort of adopted um, a their sort of high-level group's um, uh, proposal on net zero emission tracking to, I, I think, sort of uh, tackle the concept of greenwashing and making sure that folks were accountable for their net zero commitments that they were making. Um, I think limiting the role of carbon offsets and really sort of honing in on uh, sort of mitigation and carbon reduction uh, specifically. Uh, and so that's certainly something that we that we saw happen that I think is really significant. It's something that is reflective, I think, of the work that Climate Alliance states are already doing, where we, um, uh, you know, are not regularly sort of counting, um, I think, to to too great an extent offsets towards our um, towards our net zero goals, um, and keeping the focus really sort of on reducing greenhouse gas emissions through traditional mitigation and uh, natural climate solutions. Um, and so I, I think it's, a, it's a, an important signal to the, to the global community, both sort of uh, subnational actors, national actors, um, and in, in particular, I think private sector and corporate partners that net zero commitments really have to see the follow through and that folks are accountable for what they commit to at COPS. Uh, I would just add really quickly. Um, <clears throat> the, um, at COP, we got it to 150 countries that are now uh, pledged to the Global Methane Pledge to basically recognize, for those of you who know, 
methane, really potent greenhouse gas. Not, not all countries actually report on their non-CO2 emissions. And so 95% of the countries that are in the Global Methane Pledge, which is three-fourths of the world, have now committed to actually include methane in their climate pledges going forward, which is really important because it's fast acting. So it does a lot more warming in the near term to the climate. And we also want to make sure countries are actually monitoring and reporting those. If you follow the New York Times and a lot of other outlets that have climate beats, there is an immense amount of work going on right now in satellite tracking of methane emissions and fugitive methane emissions, basically things that countries are not aware of or are not reporting or are not mitigating. So it's really important to have accountability on countries actually not just walking the walk on climate ambition, but doing a better job of having the ability to monitor um, their greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, just one, one other example. It's a great question to add to that. Um, so something was, uh, well, first of all, as some folks may be familiar with, the kind of national accounting that happens under the UNFCCC is very slow. Usually the reporting is, you know, about two years out of date. Uh, so having a much more, you know, up-to-date uh, information and databases is really critical for making some of these decisions. So one thing that was, it was kind of launched before this, but actually officially got, uh, I think, announced at COP was Al Gore and a broader consortium announced uh, something called Climate Trace. Uh, which is basically kind of, uh, you're nodding, so you may know already, but real-time, basically, monitoring of emission sources, including some of the ones Jesse was referring to, you know, from satellites, from big data, from AI, uh, and so really trying to get that almost real-time picture of where uh, countries and even some national actors and corporate emissions are coming from, so we can get a handle on them, track them, uh, and be a lot more effective in actually managing them. Thanks for that. We have another question in the back? Yeah, hi. Um, First off, I'd like to thank the panel for just really coming and really talking about COP. I'll tell you, like, the live feed does not give you the full experience. Um, but I guess my question is, uh, what was the conversation uh, on resource shortages? Um, is there, like, a plan of action for uh, mobilization? Should we run out of uh, critical resources such as uh, cobalt, nickel, something the Biden administration has specifically targeted? Uh, or is it just simply that we're trying to Beat, uh, uh, beat out those resource shortages, get our action plans in before we face any real shortages. Not an expert in this topic by any means, but I, I should mention that obviously following the passage of the CHIPS Act here from Congress earlier this year, this is a major focus and it mostly flows not through my office, but through the Office of the National Climate Advisor at the White House, who are basically working through domestic supply chain issues. This is where they spend most of their time, basically figuring out not just how do you source more renewables in the United States, but how do you actually manufacture more of that stuff here, or if it's not from here, making sure we're sustainably sourcing a lot of those things. There's been a lot of attention on the domestic content requirements in the IRA. As folks have pointed out, it takes the better part of two years to get an electric vehicle right now. So the thought is, if we're going to be building out global capacity to do things like build EVs, some of it should be built here in the United States. Why not create those supply chain pressures here so we can actually meet that unmet demand right now in terms of U.S.? But I would not pretend to be an expert on, on cobalt and the various elements you mentioned there. Do we have any cobalt experts on the panel? Okay. Um, that may be one where maybe we do some follow-up to help you answer your question there. Um, that would be fine because I... I don't know. I mean, I know cobalt like is a blue color, I think, when you look at the crayons, but beyond that. Um, other questions from the audience? I just want to make sure we give lots of opportunity. I'm going to keep going because we have, a, I think I can see about f six more minutes. So we, if you do have questions, this is your chance. Um, but uh, Brendan, you went through a bunch of announcements that kind of stuck out to you. And I'm, I'd like to come back to that. There were so many announcements. I, w I went to the one that you mentioned, I think, on green hydrogen in Egypt. It was super cool. Um, but I'm curious, like going through the panel, and maybe Brendan will start with you and then we'll just go through. Um, 
what announcements from either a country, group of countries, or coming from a non -sector, another sector do you think could be especially impactful in the near term when it comes to emissions reductions, just transition, uh, climate adaptation, any, any, anything that's just especially impactful? I'll start with you. Sure. So uh, I mentioned five already, so maybe I'll pick a different one other than those five, uh, which I also sort of spoke to. But I think um, the Bridgetown initiative, like, again, this was, it was, you know, fairly present in some of the head of state section, you know, again, coming from Barbados, France, others kind of really putting some weight behind this. But I think if we talk about potentially transformational impact, this is one of the, the areas that I'm most excited about in terms of, again, reforming the you know, international financial architecture to be a lot more responsive to mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage, and, and other needs. So I think um, you know, President Macron has said that he is going to convene a summit uh, this summer, this coming summer, uh, focused on part of the, parts of this initiative and even connecting them with, with loss and damage as well, too. And so again, with this uh, you know, kind of clock uh, that has been given to the multilateral development banks and others to really start you know, shaping up uh, I think, you know, having some real milestones uh, from the end of the year uh, where they will have to kind of do this refresh plan to this Macron summit, to the UN General Assembly, and some of the, you know, ambition that needs to be put on the table. If you can start to see some of those pieces falling into place in terms of how you're reforming the system, including through the kind of spring and annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, I think that starts to really get at some of the transformative scale that we actually need to get traction on this problem. And again, the U.S. just has such a critical role uh, to lean in and use its influence there. Thanks for that. Preeti? Yeah, no, um, building on uh, what Brendan said, um, I'll, I'll uh, talk about the woman power. And uh, Mia Motley, of course, and her Bridgetown initiative, I think has been critical in, in just shifting the discourse on the subject and uh, in providing some very tangible ways forward where everybody's struggling, you know, to find the money to fund action. So uh, she for sure. I would uh, point out Nicola Sturgeon, whom you had the opportunity to meet because it was at COP26 that she stood out and stood up on the loss and damage agenda and made the first commitment. And then philanthropies and other, you know, uh, other jurisdictions came in to, to make that. And then at this COP, she, she came and doubled that commitment. And uh, even though the money is small, uh, you know, standing up first, uh, and sticking your neck out, I think uh, she is important. The third important woman, and I think Senator Rosen should be happy that I'm mentioning these women, uh, <laughs> is Kristalina uh, Georgieva, uh, leading the IMF into new territory. Um, regarding the role it can play in building uh, resilience to climate change, not only economic resilience. So, so these three powerful women, I think, are, are going to lead us mm -hmm. into some very interesting directions. Apart from that, in terms of announcements, I talked about the Global Shield Against Climate Risk. Uh, it is an important initiative, even though small. Um, but what is important in that financing structure is uh, what the vulnerable countries brought uh, their own loss and damage fund, which they said they would pilot after COP26. Getting that embedded in the Global Shield, I think, is an important selling point for the Global Shield also as part of the funding arrangements. And the UN Secretary General's initiative that in the next five years, uh, uh, everybody should have access to early warning systems. Uh, it is a low-hanging fruit. Uh, it can save lives. Um, significantly if everybody has access to early warning systems. I think that was a significant announcement. He's got 
many countries, including the US behind it, and the role of ordinary citizens. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I, and the young people who are really, you know, pushing, pushing the ball over here and pushing the narrative. I think uh, all those forces need to be harnessed and taken forward. Um, Casey? Yeah, I want to steal one before Jesse gets it. Um, <laughs> um, I, I feel like I would want to underscore the supplemental methane rule that the Biden administration mm -hmm. announced and rolled out um, during the president's visit um, with Administrator Regan. But uh, methane is obviously a, an extraordinarily potent greenhouse gas with huge warming potential. Um, and the supplemental rule that was put out by EPA, I think, is going to go a really long way towards um, strengthening and building on prior um, regulatory efforts by the agency to tackle methane emissions in the oil and gas sector um, as part of the sort of domestic uh, global plan uh, that they rolled out, um, which incorporates a lot of the actions that um, alliance states are taking across our coalition to tackle methane, uh, not just in the oil and gas sector, but also from landfills and from the agricultural sector. Um, but so just want to give, a, I think, a shout out to the Biden administration for that, which I think is going to be um, really, really significant in terms of uh, a warming reduced. And Jesse, you get the last word on this one if you'd like it. Yeah, just really quickly. Brendan mentioned this earlier, but this was one of the announcements that the president made while he was at COP. This interesting partnership um, funded by the US and Germany and the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development in Egypt, which is basically going to help retire a bunch of aging fossil fuel infrastructure in Egypt, free up some natural gas that Egypt produces for those plants for export to Europe to deal with their very difficult winter given the war in Ukraine, and then build a bunch of renewable energy to backfill that power they're taking off the grid. This is a really cool model in Egypt of basically how you help countries that are struggling with the war in Ukraine, retire fossil fuel resources, and build renewables with the cooperation of several international donors is something we'd like to see replicated elsewhere. Great, thanks. Um, we are at time. I'm going to give our panelists, if whoever would like it, we have several dozen staff in the room online. They're going to get asked on Monday by their boss, their chief of staff, their LD, whoever, hey, how was that briefing? Any top line messages you would like them to communicate? Probably has to be a single sentence. It has to be easy to write down quickly and remember. But anyone want to chime in with a top line message about COP27? The U.S. can't do more on climate change unless Congress appropriates money for us to spend overseas to help other countries combat the climate crisis. I guess we'll go down the line here. <laughs> um, uh, somewhat to, to echo that, I think the, the U.S. Uh, role and leadership, especially on the climate finance piece, both the public but also the innovative side, cannot be overstated. Yep. And leaning in there is going to be absolutely essential to success on this entire enterprise. Um, I would say in this multipolar and multi-crisis world, uh, the role of U.S. in, in uh, uh, reposing trust and, uh, you know, regaining lost ground in the multilateral system where vulnerable countries have a voice I will be critical moving forward. Casey, you get the last word. I feel very powerful with the last word. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like a broken record, but... Um, the U.S. will not meet its NDC with federal action alone. The federal government depends on and will need state and local governments, um, and in particular states and governors, to carry the ball forward in partnership. And so it's not just an all-of-government approach, but it's got to be an all-levels-of-government approach. That's a great way to end it. Thanks to our fabulous panelists, uh, Jesse, Brendan, Preeti, and Casey. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, just tremendous panels. Um, if anyone would like to go back and revisit the webcast, it'll be available on www.esi.org. We'll also do uh, summary notes in a couple weeks, probably before the holidays, uh, and um, also presentation materials. 
Um, I'd also like to say thank you one last time to Senator Menendez and his great staff at Senate Foreign Relations and in his personal office for helping us get this great room and getting all the AV and everything set up. I'd like to thank Senator Rosen for joining us uh, via uh, pre-recorded video remarks and to her staff for making that possible. Um, I'd also like to shout out to somebody who isn't with us today, and that's Helen Mountford with Climate Works. Uh, she was unfortunately not able to join us today, but um, she was great, and I got to see her at, at COP27 as well and, and learned a lot from what she had to say. So just wanted to thank her as well. Uh, as she, was, she was part of the lead up to this. We have a lot of ESI staff in the room. Um, my colleague Anna, uh, Savannah, Molly on the policy team. We also have Omri, Emma, Shreya. This is Shreya. Shreya's almost done with her fall internship, and this is her second in-person briefing. She's picked it really well. Uh, great intern. Curtis, our videographer, couldn't do this without him. Dan O'Brien, he organizes all of these briefings, pulls them all together. And there are Allison and others who are back at the back at the ranch. Uh, so thanks to everybody for everything you did to pull today off. And I mentioned Shreya because she's the best, but Alina and Nick are also the best. Those are our other two fall interns, and they're also behind the scenes uh, doing live tweeting and notes and social media and, and all of that stuff. My colleague Dan O'Brien put a link up here on the screen. This is a survey. If you have two minutes and you would like to take the survey to tell us how we did, uh, or if you have ideas for future topics, or if you had any AV issues or anything like that, we read every response, uh, and so it does mean a lot uh, when people um, have an opportunity to fill that out. Um, I'll make. I'll end with one last plug. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening in the next couple weeks with the holidays and everything. And I don't want to say omnibus because I don't want to jinx it, but funding packages and things like that. And then we get back. It's a new Congress. There's lots. The best way to keep up with it all is to subscribe to our biweekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. We've got, I think, the last issue is the 20th, and then we'll be back in early January. We're going to have climate camp briefings, farm bill briefings, farm bill fact sheets, all sorts of great stuff. And so um, it's all designed specifically for congressional staff to help their bosses do what they need to do. So TGIF, I hope everyone has a great Wednesday. Um, please uh, feel free to hang out and network for a minute. The panelists, again, thank you. Have a great weekend as well. And thanks for helping us close out our, um, well, I think, successful COP27 briefing series. Thanks, everybody. Thank